Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It's a terrible thing that we can't with great confidence say there is no chance that the president is not, in some respect, working for the Russian government. That's David Cohen. He held two roles during the Obama administration. First, he served as the Undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, and then became the Deputy Director of the CIA. He's now a partner at the law firm Wilmer Hale. I speak with him about President Trump's strange relationship with Russia, the U.S. shifts on sanctions, and whether America has actually defeated ISIS. That's coming up. Stay tuned. As many of you know, we recently launched Cafe Insider, where we delve into the daily avalanche of news and help make sense of issues at the intersection of law and politics. Members get access to a weekly podcast with Ann Milgram and me, where we tackle the most pressing questions about what's happening that week. Members also get a weekly newsletter, texts from me when news breaks, bonus Stay Tuned content, and more. Stay Tuned will be here every Thursday, but for more real-time, in-depth analysis of what's happening today, join Cafe Insider at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Okay, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. It's Louise in San Diego, and I'm wondering... Well, I'm totally freaked out by the fact that there's no readouts from Trump's conversations, meetings with Putin. And I assume that the senators know that. I mean, if the public knows it, the senators know it. And I don't know why they're not more freaked out than than they have been and more wary of carrying out his bizarre agenda. Anyway, thanks. I just needed to talk to somebody. (laughs) Yeah even if it was just a line. Bye. Uh, Louise, thank you for your honesty and candor with respect to your freakout. And with respect to your question as to why not more senators, and particularly on the Republican side, are not freaking out, I, I actually think that many of them are. And every once in a while you saw a senator, including a chairman like Bob Corker, reveal his internal freakout when he would accuse the White House of being adult daycare. I think that Mitt Romney probably is freaking out a little bit. He wrote that op-ed, which I think some people poo-pooed, but other people welcomed. I think Mitch McConnell is freaking out in various ways, uh, even though he won't say it publicly. He himself, separate and apart from his concerns about 
how chaotic the White House is, he was fully humiliated by the president when he had a vote that got unanimous approval on a budget, even without funding for the wall, and then the president did an about-face. So I, so I think it's the case, and it's a theme we've been talking about week after week after week on the podcast, that there's a lot of people who have problems with how Trump operates. There are a lot of people who are really concerned about the Trump-Putin relationship. The, the thing you're specifically talking about with the meetings and the readout are the series of discussions that Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin have had in various cities, including Helsinki and Hamburg, that the Washington Post has reported about, suggesting that Trump is trying really, really, really hard to prevent the substance of those conversations from becoming known, not just to the public, but also even to the relevant internal high-level White House staff, including the national security personnel, in some cases, uh, the Secretary of State and the Department of State. And that has a lot of people very concerned. It's got members of the House on the Democratic side so concerned. They are considering, as you may have seen in the news, in the Washington Post article, doing something fairly extraordinary, issuing a subpoena to one of the interpreters who, in at least a couple of instances, was the only witness to the conversation between Trump and Putin. That would be an extraordinary measure. But the problem with a lot of the things that Trump does is that it sometimes calls for extraordinary measures to try to undo the damage and make sure the information is known. I, I personally think it's a very serious step and a bad precedent to set going forward to submit the president's interpreter. But in a circumstance in which, as some people have written, including David Frum, in a good article in The Atlantic in the last week, it may be a necessary step to take. So I appreciate your, your interest, your frustration. Um, look, we all get frustrated. Uh, the other night, I sent a tweet out when I saw the report that Donald Trump apparently has privately expressed great interest in withdrawing from NATO. And in my frustration, given the backdrop here, I sent out a you know, somewhat ill-considered tweet where I said, you know, if this is true, then Donald Trump should come forward, state publicly his intent to withdraw from NATO so he can be impeached and convicted by the Congress, to which a lot of people responded correctly. Well, you know, differences of opinion over policy are not a basis for impeachment, and that is true. This is the problem with Twitter with 280 characters. Of course, that's correct. In part, I was showing the kind of frustration that I wish Republican senators would show more of and that you suggested in your call. But I will say that may be true that policy differences are not a basis for impeachment, but that depends on why one suggests they want to withdraw from NATO. And against the backdrop of the President of the United States constantly meeting with Putin, not wanting anyone to know what he said, reciting Soviet-era propaganda, directly the Soviet line, on the propriety and wisdom of the Soviet Union going to Afghanistan, lots and lots of credible, reasonable people in the national security community, in the intelligence community, and the political community have wondered aloud is the president taking direction from Russia and or is he more interested in serving the interests of Russia than the United States? And so in the circumstance in which a president is privately expressing an interest in withdrawing from NATO, which I don't know any reasonable national security official or defense department official thinks that's a good idea, if he's doing it at the behest of his friend Vladimir Putin, that is 100% impeachable. This next tweet comes from Clicky Fingers, the XL God. That's G-A-W-D who writes, at Preparara, I feel like partisans on both sides are out in full force today, and I don't know how concerned I should be about Barr getting confirmed. Can you cut through the rhetoric on both sides and share your thoughts? Hashtag AskPreet. Okay, uh, clicky fingers, or Mr. XL God, uh, however you like to be addressed. Look, you're talking about the confirmation hearing, much of which I watched yesterday, which was January 15th, Tuesday. And it's kind of a mixed bag. 
I will tell you. And I, I've seen a lot of the commentary and I've seen a lot of the reaction from both people on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. There are deep concerns that people have, particularly given the track record of Jeff Sessions and the issues relating to recusal and whether or not Bob Mueller can stay in place. So on the side of concern, you have, I think, legitimate issues raised with respect to Bill Barr taking a slightly different approach, not slightly different, but a significantly different approach to the issue of recusal than his predecessors. So Jeff Sessions made very clear in his Senate questionnaire that he would seek and follow advice of career ethics officials, and then he ended up doing that and withdrew from any oversight responsibility of the Mueller investigation. Bob Barr, in very different language that he reiterated yesterday at his hearing, says he will consult with the ethics officials. doesn't say he will follow the direction given or the advice provided, but that he will retain, I guess as he thinks he has the right to as the attorney general, the decision-making authority on whether or not he has to recuse, which leaves him a lot of leeway. Because even if it's the case that ethics officials, when they do their analysis and they look at the memo that he sent, which took issue with the obstruction aspect of the Russia investigation and other things, if they advise him that the best thing for purposes of appearance or otherwise is to recuse, he has reserved the right not to do that. I think that's bad. I think people should be concerned about that. He's also seemed to prejudge a little bit, as I've mentioned, some of the issues relating to what the president's authority is and what Mueller's authority is. That's not good either. Third, I think there are legitimate concerns that in, that in some ways, even though Bill Barr, to his credit, has some institutional memory of the Department of Justice and is a professional, he served the Justice Department 27 years ago. And his views on crime and on incarceration, admittedly, were formed at a time when there was a huge crack epidemic and crime epidemic and violence epidemic in many major cities in the country. It is not absolutely clear to me or to other people that his sensibilities about those things have changed significantly. He did, in response to questions from Senator Cory Booker, I think express some change of, of opinion and some growth in that regard, but I don't know how far it's gone. So there are, I think, legitimate things for people to be concerned about. In, in addition to all of that, uh, Vanita Gupta, who's a former guest on the show a couple of times, wrote a piece that you can check out on the cafe.com website about how there is a deep concern that on the issue of civil rights, which barely came up yesterday, that Bill Barr will be Sessions 2.0. And we can't have that, whether you're talking about voting rights or uh, discrimination lawsuits or anything else. So lots of areas for concern. On the other side, Bill Barr is a lot better than what we have now. He's about a thousand times better than Matt Whitaker, both ethically, both as a skilled lawyer, as an institutionalist. And I understand that it's not great from certain people's perspective to say, well, someone is better than someone else. Can't we do better? It's not clear to me, and I'm not saying that this is a good reason to support Bill Barr necessarily, but it's not clear to me in the current climate with Donald Trump liking toadies surrounding him everywhere and often leaving in place in an acting capacity, people who are heads of offices and heads of agencies this is a professional person. In all my dealings with him, I found him to be professional, smart. I thought he acquitted himself in some ways very, very well during the hearing. Even on the issue of Mueller and oversight, he made it clear you know, to a room full of senators on national television that he will not be bullied by the Congress, by the press, or by the president. I take him at his word on that. Uh, and he will do only what he thinks is right. Now, the things that he thinks are right, you might not agree with, but I still think that's a good thing. You know, the other interesting thing that some other people have noted as well about the Barr testimony is that he said something good, I thought, and that is that it would be improper for a president 
to attempt to intervene in any enforcement matter that touched upon someone close to him, a family member or a business associate. And in fact, an attempt to intervene in such a case would be a violation of the constitutional oath that was said by Bill Barr. And the question arises, has President Trump already committed that violation? Because if you believe the reporting, he looks like he tried to intervene with respect to Michael Flynn and maybe other matters. He also reportedly did that with Matthew Whitaker when he sought to ask the question, how can you rein in the SDNY prosecutors who are bringing the case against Michael Cohen? So whether it's with respect to Michael Flynn or Michael Cohen, Donald Trump arguably has already breached the oath uh, and his duty as articulated by his own AG nominee, Bill Barr. As he said repeatedly, uh, he's 68 years old. He's had the job before. He doesn't have a future in politics. He doesn't really need to be beholden to anyone. And so even though I think his views on presidential power are a little bit broad, he does bring professionalism to the job. I think he's, he's a better choice than Jeff Sessions was. I think he's a dramatically better choice than Matt Whitaker remaining in place would be. And look, I'm, I'm taping this on Wednesday morning and the hearings are proceeding, uh, but I agree with everyone else who says, given the numbers in the Senate and given how he didn't have any particular gaffes yesterday and given the status quo of Matt Whitaker, he will be confirmed. And my hope is, separate and apart from concerns about him, that he will distinguish himself and that he will do good things and he will work with both sides of the aisle to bring about things like sentencing reform and civil rights improvements. And given his friendship and respect for, which we made very clear, friendship and respect for Bob Mueller, does not think, contrary to what the president says, that Bob Mueller would engage in a witch hunt. Uh, and also his clear statements that it would be his intent to make public the findings made by Bob Mueller. I mean, th that, th that said, he, Bill Barr is a smart guy, smart and also clever. And he left himself wiggle room on all manner of issues, including the nature and substance of a report he would put out, how much would be made public, whether he would recuse. So we'll see. I think there's some reason for cautious optimism. But I could be wrong, and then you can all yell at me. Hi, Pete. This is Sean O'Neill from Charlemont, Massachusetts. Your show is simply superb. It seems to me Robert Mueller is generating a lot of ancillary cases that will require support from the U.S. Attorney's offices in various districts. What kind of shape are those offices in under the Trump administration, and are they ready to play catcher to Mueller's pitcher? Hey, Sean, thanks for your question. I don't, I don't know about the baseball metaphor, but I can speak, you know, to the Southern District's ability to do those cases because I ran it, which has had assigned to it various things, including the Michael Cohen matter from Mueller's office, and they're in great shape. You know, the U.S. Attorney's offices throughout the country really are the backbone of the Justice Department in terms of bringing prosecutions. The vast majority of prosecutions are not brought by trial lawyers who sit in Washington, but through the various districts all around the country. And the Southern District in particular, that I led for seven and a half years, remains independent, has the same excellent quality of people. There's not turnover from time to time. As happened with me, there's turnover at the top. But when a U.S. attorney changes, that doesn't change the makeup of the office. The professional career folks whose politics are never inquired about, whose politics don't matter, continue to work on the cases. And so, you know, other than a shift at the top, which I'm not sure how much that matters, the excellence of the, of the office remains. That's true also of the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, the Eastern District of Virginia, and various other places, some of which maybe we don't even know, have received referrals from Mueller's office. So the easy answer to your question is they are in very good position to bring whatever case they think is appropriate to bring. 
uh, and to decline any case they think it's appropriate to decline. And further to the spirit of your question, it's it's a little bit harder for you know a president or even an attorney general to shut down without good cause and without causing a conflagration and a public, I think, reckoning, various cases in various offices. My guest this week is David Cohen. During the Obama administration, he served first as the Undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, where, among other things, he oversaw the U.S. sanctions program against Iran. David then became the Deputy Director of the CIA, a position he held from 2015 to 2017. He's now a partner at the law firm Wilmer Hale. I speak with him about the current status of U.S. sanctions around the world, the planned withdrawal from Syria, and whether he can say with certainty that the President of the United States is not a Russian asset. That's coming up. Stay tuned. The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. Both online and in print, The New Yorker covers a full range of topics, including a lot of things we cover here on Stay Tuned. Politics, news, international affairs. Not to mention, The New Yorker touches on subjects that many readers may not have previously put much thought into, like the world's diminishing supply of sand, paper jams, stink bugs, and hunting down heirloom beans. Some of The New Yorker's incredible writers include contributors like Ronan Farrow, a former guest on the show, who's broken big stories on Harvey Weinstein and Les Moonves. We've also talked to Jane Mayer about Brett Kavanaugh and Jeff Tubin about Trump and the law. And now our listeners can save 50% and get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 when you go to newyorker.com slash preet and enter preet. You'll also get the exclusive tote, as well as unlimited access to The New Yorker's apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. That's newyorker.com slash preet and enter Preet. Support for today's show comes from Away, luggage that's at home on the road and carries you forward, making your trip a little easier. By using high-quality materials like premium German polycarbonate and selling directly to you, Away is able to offer resistant, lightweight luggage at a much lower price. Choose from a variety of colors and four sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, or the large for extended stays. My family was just traveling for the holidays, and we used the bigger carry-on. There is no joy like the joy of not checking a bag when you're flying. Both sizes of the carry-on are able to charge all cell phones, tablets, anything that's powered by a USB cord. And every Away suitcase features a TSA-approved combination lock built into the bag to prevent theft. Best of all, thanks to Away's lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, they will fix or replace it for you for life. So for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash Preet and use promo code Preet during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash Preet and use promo code Preet during checkout for $20 off a suitcase. David Cohen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with, we have a million things to talk about, mm-hmm. but I'm going to start with an easy softball question, which is this. Is Donald Trump... A Russian asset? <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, First of all, think, the fact that you don't know yeah. used to be at the CIA. Yeah. I was going to say, the fact that I don't know, um, and this doesn't have anything to do with my time when I was at the agency, has to do with everything we've seen in the two years since, um, I think is really you know, disconcerting that you can't say with great certainty that 
the president isn't either an unwitting agent or someone who has over you know, many, many years been sort of co-opted and brought into the Russian orbit. Does it pain you to say that? Terribly. It's a horrible thing. It's a terrible thing that we can't with great confidence say there is no chance that the president is not in some respect working for the Russian government. What is it about Donald Trump's interactions over many, many years with Russians that make you worry about that? Yeah, look, he has, you know, for a decade, two decades, been traveling to Russia on occasion, not consistently, but on occasion traveling to Russia. He has been involved in business relationships with the Russians, whether it's the Miss Universe pageant or Russians purchasing units in his buildings. It worries me that he has, in some respect, been brought into the Russian orbit, that they have invested in him. This is standard you know, initially Soviet, now Russian tradecraft. They see an influential American, and Donald Trump, you know, 20 years ago was an influential American. They're going to look for a way to try to use that person as an agent of influence in the United States, as someone who will who will help to promote their narrative, their line, their view of the world. So, but do you think, this is a hypothetical, if you were to pull various experts within the agency that you helped to run, Mm-hmm. and said, do you think that Donald Trump is an asset of Russia? Are there people there who would say definitively based on information that they have? The answer is no. So I can't say that. I can't say one way or the other, frankly, because I imagine there has been a fair amount of information and intelligence that the agency has collected in the last several years that would help inform that answer. But, you know, what we see, you know, openly, transparently, you know, every day has got to make you question. And and I think it's important to draw a distinction here between sort of policy approaches that you think, gee, that's like ill-advised. That's not how I would do it. That seems to, you know, support the Russian viewpoint on this more than a traditional American viewpoint. You know, I mean, that's the president's prerogative. You know, we I think we need to give him the benefit of the doubt in some respects that he came to those views you know, for example, honestly, what, so for example, his view on sanctions, you would say, is a policy difference. Sure, I think it could be his view on the withdrawal from Syria. He ran and was quite, you know, quite clear during the campaign that he thought we were overextended in the Middle East, whether it was Syria or Afghanistan. I mean, I think the way that he has gone about announcing and and beginning the withdrawal from Syria is completely screwed up, but. You know, the fact that he took that perspective and others in the foreign policy and national security establishment take a different perspective, I don't think that's evidence that he is working for the Russians. But you can look at things like his refusal to accept the high confidence judgment of the intelligence community that the Russians attacked us, attacked American democracy in the course of the 2016 election. And you got to kind of scratch your head and think, why would an American president not embrace the intelligence community and not take the opportunity to defend you know, one of the fundamental aspects of our country, our democracy? You can look at things like his sort of unrelenting attacks on the EU and NATO, 
which again, you can look at as a policy issue or you can look at as a sort of head scratcher about why is it that he came into office and essentially tried to blow up the two institutions that the Russians and Putin in particular are especially focused on trying to undermine. I do think the sanctions question is an important one. You know, there was a whole host of sanctions that were put in place after the Russian invasion of Ukraine that had broad bipartisan support. Um, In fact, you know, there were many who thought that the sanctions didn't go far enough. We have in the course of the campaign, apparently, conversations between his incoming national security advisor and the Russian ambassador about relaxing those sanctions. And, you know, you got to wonder what it is that leads him to, uh, to adopt these positions. But if he's an asset, he's a very peculiar one, not only because he sits atop the entire government, but I'm guessing in your experience, well, let me ask you the question. In your experience, working on Intel Matters at the Treasury Department and just living life, how many assets are you aware of who sort of did things publicly to cause people to wonder if they yeah. were in fact an asset? Usually, they like to hide that stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the traditional technique of an asset is to not draw attention to the fact that they might be you know, working for a foreign power. For Donald Trump, I think the, the question has to be not whether he is sort of currently on the take from the Russians and having some, you know, secret conversation going on on, you know, signal with Vladimir Putin where he's getting direction. I think the question that people are asking, and I think it's a good question, is over many, many years, going back, you know, more than a decade, you see... Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, having interactions with the Russians. There's you know, plenty of, sort of open source information about financial relationships between the Trump Organization and certainly Russians and perhaps the Russian government. There are multiple trips to Russia. You see Donald Trump saying things like the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was done in order to combat terrorism, which is, you know, 100% the, initially the Soviet and now the Russian line on the reason that the Soviets went into Afghanistan have in you ever heard? Have you ever heard an American official take that line? No. God, no. It was the Soviet line, and it's now the Russian line, but it's, it's not what the the U.S. government viewed as the reason that the the Soviets went into Afghanistan. They went into Afghanistan because they were worried that they were going to lose a client state. There was another article over the weekend that goes to some of the points that you're making about conduct that Donald Trump is engaged in, separate and apart from policy differences for which you say he can be given the benefit of the doubt. And one of those has to do with how secret he's trying to keep the conversations right. he's had with Vladimir Putin. And one of those conversations occurred at the Helsinki summit mm-hmm. last summer to which I think there was maybe only one witness, the interpreter. Yeah. If you were still at the agency, what would you make of a sitting president being sort of that annoyed and upset about the possibility that other people, even within his own administration, who are there to give him advice and counsel and expertise, that he's so dead against anyone finding out what was said? I think it would be a very concerning situation, I think, on two scores. One is... I think everybody would have the 
the question of why is it that he wants this to be so secretive? Why does he want no one else to be in that, in that room as he has this conversation? And the second is there's a real intelligence loss if it's just the president who's in the room having the conversation with Putin, right? Even if he were going to try to weed out that whatever it was, a two-hour conversation with Putin as best he could, it is, it's impossible, to, to do that sort of readout effectively. You want to have someone else in that room taking contemporaneous notes that can then be, can then be shared through the intelligence community because that's, that is a very valuable uh, source of information. What is the likelihood that the Russians have an audio of that two-hour meeting? I don't know. I don't know. It's not I, zero. It's not zero. And it's not 100. Right. So give me a number. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, it was, uh, it was in Helsinki. You know, the Russians, uh, I think we can assume, have uh, intelligence assets there um, and at least some capacity to try and bug that room where it happens, but I don't know. What is the likelihood that the Americans, the intelligence community, or some component of it, has a recording of that meeting? I would say close to zero. We why, would, why is that? Well, because we would not record the president surreptitiously. That's not what we would do. And if the president Unless said, he was the subject of a counterintelligence investigation. I think even in that circumstance, it seems to me bordering on the impossible to think that we would surreptitiously Michael Cohen did it. His lawyer yeah. taped him. Right. That's a different situation. It's a yeah, phone call. Different. That's different. That, the U.S. intelligence community is not going to secretly record the president's meetings. And I him. totally get that. And I would agree with that, although I'm not as expert as you. But I guess i got to ask you, in, in a time where, and this is a serious question, in a time where you have a president who's acting in a completely non-traditional way, in a way that's making some people's heads spin and other people's heads explode, should other institutions, like the intelligence community, play by the same old rules? Or should they think about doing the extraordinary thing that you're describing? And I see you shaking your head when I asked the question about whether the intelligence community would tape their own president. But does there come a time when you have to take extraordinary measures? Look, I think one of the tragedies of the Trump administration is the destruction of norms, the breaking down of barriers that are critically important to our democracy. I think one of those uh, barriers is how the intelligence community operates and the care with which it goes about collecting intelligence. I would say it is not a zero chance that in some circumstance you could have the attorney general, the director of the FBI, the director of the CIA, uh, you know, working with the national security advisor in a circumstance where you think we really have a horrible problem here with the president. We think he is, he is actually on the payroll of the Russians where you could, I think, hypothetically conceive of such a thing where you would surreptitiously tape the president. But I just, I think as a practical matter, that's, that's not how the intelligence community operates and it shouldn't be. Well, there's a related phenomenon that's been discussed in the last weekend as well. The New York Times had this revelation, they say, that in the days after Jim Comey was suddenly fired by the president, that the FBI opened up specifically a counterintelligence investigation right. of the president. Isn't, isn't that even more remarkable and unusual 
than what we've been talking about, the CIA recording the president? What, what was your reaction as a former intelligence official to that news? So I thought that we actually knew that already um, from the spring of 2017, from when Jim Comey was was testifying about the scope of what he was doing. And I think also the rules that were put in place for the Mueller investigation, it was clear that there was a counterintelligence investigation that was part of the broader uh, criminal investigation that uh, that Bob Mueller was taking over. Uh, you know, the fact that apparently, according to the Times, that the president was one of the individuals who was being, was the focus of that investigation doesn't strike me as all that remarkable. It was a counterintelligence investigation looking at whether the Russians had co-opted Americans in the course of the Trump campaign. And you would think that the guy at the head of that campaign would be part of the investigation. So the New York Times article is overhyped. Is that what you're saying, David Cohen? I'm saying that I think we (laughs) knew some of this already. And I do find it striking, actually, that it took a year and a half for this story to to seep out. It's an odd leak that comes so long after there were so many people who had incentives to be explaining what was going on. So I have a theory on that, which is I think the White House is anticipating the Mueller report coming out in the next, you know, month or two. And they know that Bob Mueller was conducting as part of his, his overall investigation, a counterintelligence investigation, and they they want this out. It's a brilliant, <clears throat> it's a brilliant Rudy Giuliani strategy. Yeah. I'd get ahead of it. Yeah, there's a, there's a long <laughs> list of those. <laughs> Let me move on from these questions about uh, Trump and the FBI. Yeah. Do, do you know that you have a nickname, I believe? You are known <laughs> as the sanctions guru. Yeah. Do you accept that title? I accept it on behalf of a large number of people <laughs> who, very uh, who supported me. You're the guru. You're the guy. How, how long did you do work involving American sanctions on other countries? For about six years when I was at the Treasury Department. So can we take a step back? Because sometimes sure. there are all these news reports about sanctions and whether it's related to Iran or Russia or South Africa years ago. For the United States government to impose sanctions on another country, mm-hmm. another sovereign nation, what has to happen? In other words, can a president wake up one morning and say, you know what? I'm kind of pissed off at Bolivia. Yeah. And we should do something about that. The president does not have the unilateral ability to do that. Or does he? Well, he sort of does, actually. Congress passed a law in the mid-70s called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, known as IEPA in the business, that gives the authority to the president to impose sanctions upon a finding that there is an unusual and extraordinary threat to the foreign policy, national security, or economy of the United States, and if the president declares a national emergency with respect to that threat. Where have I heard that before? Exactly. But who, who has to make the finding? So the finding is made by the president in an executive order. That is the foundation for a sanctions program. But separate and apart from the president doing that, Congress also has the ability to pass a law Correct. Imposing sanctions on any particular country. Right. So, and Congress has done more of that in the last, you know, five, ten years or so. So, specific legislation calling for specific sanctions to be applied against against countries. Well, you know, you've seen Iran, Russia, North Korea. But there's a back and forth, and there can be a check or a balance. Sure. Congress can pass a law, the president can veto it, then you have to work out with right. the supermajority. Yeah. Is there a philosophy of sanctions? In other words— yeah. What is the makeup of a country that makes it more susceptible to influence by sanctions than another country? It's not just a country. It's also 
a target because we have sanctions programs right, against countries as well as sanctions programs against sort of illicit conduct, yes. you know, terrorist activity, weapons proliferation. There are basically five key elements, I think, to a good sanctions program. Take through them quickly. The first is that you have a clearly articulated policy of what you're trying to change. The second thing you need is that sanctions can't be the only tool that you're using. We've got a vast array of power in the United States, from economic power to, to messaging power to you know, covert and overt influence campaigns to military signaling. A good sanctions program is embedded in a, in a broader policy. The third thing you need is good intelligence, so you know who you should be targeting with sanctions, whether they're being effective, how they're being evaded, so you can then attack it. The fourth thing for a good sanctions program is international agreement around the program. Sanctions are enormously more effective if you have others around the world working with you, not against you. And the last thing you need is a target that is susceptible to sanctions, meaning that they're exposed to the U.S. financial system, the U.S. economy, or make use of the U.S. dollar. If you got those five things, you can have an effective sanctions program. In deciding to impose sanctions, is there somewhere in the process a discussion of how it might affect individual citizens of the country, or does that not come into it? So I think the Iran sanctions is a good example of that. I mean, we in the Obama administration spent a number of years building up the sanctions against the country of Iran, against the government of Iran, by driving down their oil sales, cutting off their their banks' access to the financial sector, what have you. That was clearly having an impact on the economy broadly in Iran. Their GDP was going down, unemployment was going up. There is a provision in law that forbids sanctions from targeting food, medicine, or medical devices. So if you're selling food to Iran, if you were selling medicine or, or medical devices to Iran, you could engage in that conduct even if you were a U.S. company and you can get paid. It's not against the law to sell food, medicine, medical devices. And that's designed to try to relieve some of the impact on the population. But we paid attention to that issue. Ultimately, the question that's asked in these policy discussions is whether the objective of the sanctions that we're pursuing is significant enough that this sort of collateral impact was something that as a policy matter, we were willing to, to tolerate. Do financial sanctions work better than trade sanctions? And, and what's the difference? Yeah, I think by and large they do. The difference is financial sanctions go after the ability to pay for goods or move money. Trade sanctions try to prevent the movement of goods. Financial sanctions, I think, tend to be more powerful because it is actually easier to restrict the movement of money than the movement of goods. And so you can really, you can have a, a greater grasp on what you're trying to achieve that way. What do you make of the state of play of sanctions against Russia? And where do you see that going? Especially against the backdrop of what we've been talking about. Yeah. The president having a different view. Maybe is, you are not comfortable saying one way or another whether or not he's an asset, even though we might give him the benefit of the doubt on policy issues. It seems almost difficult to do that yeah. if the other thing is true. So I think on on Russia sanctions, where we are right now is in a little bit of a, a netherworld. Um, we have applied sanctions with focused on the Russian activity in Ukraine. They have sort of run their course in a, in a sense. Sanctions on Russian oligarchs, which are, I think, designed mostly to 
to put pressure on Putin himself have had sort of a, I think, a mixed effect. I think, you know, just recently, the sanctions on Deripaska have been in the news because his companies, which were also sanctioned when he was sanctioned, the Treasury Department has proposed to relieve those sanctions on his companies. I don't think we have a, a good reason to think that that has had much of an impact on the thinking of of President Putin, the people around him. You know, on the other hand, we did see that the Russians were quite interested in having the sanctions relieved, um, which I think is a, you know, a good indication that the sanctions were having some effect. I mean, if they didn't, if they didn't care about them, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have spent so much time trying to persuade the, you know, incoming Trump administration to remove these sanctions. Right. Sanctions are not punishment, though. Right. Sanctions, you know, in the classic conception, are designed to change behavior. They're not designed to punish. So the target of your sanctions should have the opportunity to demonstrate a changed behavior, a changed approach. Whatever it is that got them sanctioned in the first place, they should be able to demonstrate that they're no longer engaged in that behavior. And so the sanctions can be relieved because they're designed to be coercive, not, not punitive. Do you think we should have more sanction, criminal cases based on sanctions violations? Mike, you're smiling. My, my office brought a bunch of criminal cases based on violations of IEPA and some of these other laws yeah. that you've described. Yeah. Do we need more of that or not? Well, I got to testify in one of those cases. I know. In the Zarab case or the, the spinoff, the Attila case. People may have heard me mention this. Yeah. Reza Zarab was an Iranian gold trader from Turkey whom my office charged when I was in office. He ended up flipping and cooperating with the government. And his co-defendant went to trial right. after I left office, and you testified at that trial. I testified in that trial because this isn't exactly the legal charge, but the basic charge was that that this guy, Mehmet Attila, had lied to U.S. officials about what he was doing with Reza Zarab. And I was one of those U.S. officials who he allegedly lied to. So I got to go in and testify about my interactions with, uh, with Mr. Attila, um, which I think has led to both you and me being – uh, <laughs> we can't really go to Turkey. We can't go to Turkey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I officially can't go to Russia, um, yeah. but I think sort of as a de facto matter, I can't Take, go to Turkey. Was your yeah. trial experience fun? Did my folks treat you well? They did treat me well. It was, uh, it was an interesting perspective to be in the witness box, um, having been a lawyer for many years. How'd you handle, yes. How'd you handle cross-examination? Did you melt? Uh, I think I, I was able to, to sustain myself. You think you were able to sustain yourself? Yeah. That's very modest. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> modest way of putting it. Any other countries you think we should be thinking about sanctioning? How many programs of sanctions do we have? At the yeah, we, we now have 30 active sanctions programs. And I think we have too many, candidly. I think one of the problems that we've run into in the last several years is as sanctions have become, have been used effectively in some circumstances, uh, there's a view that they can be used effectively in all circumstances. So we have, you know, just in the last year, a new sanctions program on Nicaragua. We've ramped up our sanctions in Venezuela. I think there's a fair question as to whether those sanctions programs can be effective, you know, whether they are trying to achieve some policy objective that has been, you know, clearly identified, you know, and sort of meet all of the requirements, I think, a good sanctions program needs to meet in order to be effective. Can you go back to sort of the national security threat matrix a little bit? Sure. Where are we with ISIS? <laughs> so we are uh, very close to eliminating the 
territory that ISIS controls. Um, we are not quite there yet. I've always thought a bit a bit of like an infection um, that you know you need to apply the antibiotics and you got to stay the course until you really get the you know the infection out. Uh, I think that's where we are with ISIS. I think there's there's still work to be done to get them entirely out of land that they hold, but that does not solve the problem. ISIS, as your listeners may remember, is just you know the version 2.0 of Al Qaeda in Iraq, a terrorist organization that we spend a long time attacking and moving out of territory, taking their members off the battlefield. But we never completely did the job either in terms of of eradicating the land that they held, but I think more importantly, going after the the ideology that led to AQI first emerging and certainly into ISIS emerging. That's the hard work. That's the long-term work that needs to be done. But I guess my reaction is it's pretty much correct in your view then what the president said, that ISIS is largely defeated. Fair? No, not fair. It's not fair if by defeat we mean we no longer need to worry about ISIS. Well, I guess the way in which he would claim that ISIS has been largely defeated versus the way you claim there still remains work to be done, which I agree with, Mm. is that work that needs to be done by military forces remaining in various parts of the world. I mean, do you get at the to ideology some, yeah, through troops yeah. or something else? Yeah. So I think you don't necessarily need U.S. troops to do that, to do the the work on the ideology. You need some some ability to watch what's going on, whether that's, you know, with the military or with the intelligence community, uh, to see, you know, whether this, you know, this problem, to mix my metaphors, is metastasizing. Right. You don't necessarily need troops on the ground. And, you know, to go back to something we were talking about earlier— the decision to to withdraw troops from Syria, or for that matter, what seems to have been a decision to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, is not one that I think broadly people in the national security community think is you know, completely illegitimate. It's, you know, we've been in yeah. Afghanistan for, you know, a decade and a half now. Or longer, we've been in Syria for a number of years right. now. Because no one, no one that I know, support. If you use this phrase, and it's a controversial phrase, no one supports endless war. Right. So right. I'm assuming that your concern is with the manner in which the withdrawal was announced, right. and that means not just the you know doing it by tweet, which itself is you know sort of crazy, but not having any planning in place for how a withdrawal of troops will not create more problems than we currently have. How we're going to, you know, work with the Kurds so that they don't become, you know, the target of eradication by the Turks. How we're going to address the fact that Iran is in place in Syria and using Syria as a conduit to resupply Hezbollah. I mean, there's a whole host of things that we should have done so that when we remove troops from Syria— we leave a situation that is, you know, better than the situation that we have today. I want to go back to what you said about ideology. Mm-hmm. That's the hard thing. You know, some of the work that you and I have been engaged with and in in our careers, there are real concrete tools. You know, you impose sanctions, you decide what kind of sanctions. That's a real thing. Charging someone with a crime, that's a real thing. To get at the underlying root of those things, 
whether it's the roots of crime, you, yeah. know, you know, socioeconomic status and opportunity and all those other things, or eradicating an ideology on the part of people who feel they have grievances against the West, right. legitimate or not, that's really hard. Right. And, and a little bit out of sort of the wheelhouse of how you and I engaged as professionals in government, do you have any advice to folks as to how you deal with that ultimate issue? Yeah, I do think that one thing that we need to focus on as a country is how we engage with the world, right? And I think the terrorism question is, you know, puts this quite precisely. The United States out in the world does a whole host of really good things. We educate, we build, we develop infrastructure, we combat corruption. And I think there is an expectation that the United States is on the side of progress, on the side of economic growth. We need to ensure, I think, two things. One is that as we engage with the world, we do those things, we don't pull back, we make it clear that the United States is there to help support our allies and countries where, you know, they are not already you know, deeply embedded in the, you know, in the alliance structure. The other side of this coin is we need to also make that argument at home. One of the things that I think is critically important is that we not allow there to be an artificial distinction between foreign policy and domestic policy. One of the concerns that I have is you see people in the United States questioning why we are engaged with the world, why we take a leadership position in the world. The reason I think is, at least from my perspective, twofold. One is because it is an investment in our own security. If we're out there helping to address conditions in the world that if we, if left unattended, could be the breeding ground for threats against the United States. That's one hand. The other hand is there are real threats out in the world, and it's better that we address them there before they come here. We've got to make that argument in a way that is more compelling to the folks here in the United States. We've got to tell stories. We have to explain why it is what we're doing. And I also think we need to be thoughtful about how we engage in the world. And it's you know a fair question whether we should be doing everything we're doing or doing everything in the same way that we're doing it. Well, I mean, you use the phrase leadership in the world, and that sounds very nice. Yeah. On the other side, people will say, well, if that means that the United States has to be the world's policeman, yeah. we don't get paid enough for doing that. We get taken to borrow you know, phraseology yeah. from Donald Trump. We don't get paid enough for doing that. We have enough of our own problems. We have an immigration problem, they say. How do you get past that divide? What's sort of interesting is there. I think there's a perception that divide is greater than it is. There was a recent uh, survey done by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. They do this every year. And they asked people all across the United States, you know, should the United States be engaged in the world? Should the United States have a leadership position in the world? And somewhere in the like 70 to 80 percent of the respondents said, yes, the U.S. should be engaged in the world, should have a leadership position in the world. And those numbers are going up. Interestingly, in the Trump era, those numbers are going up, not down. So I do think that Americans do understand that an investment in the world, in trying to address problems that exist out in the world, 
redounds to our benefit. It's an investment in our own security as much as it's an investment in the conditions of others around the world. Right. The problem is, like, with all things like that, it's an amorphous investment. If you put a certain amount of money into a country to help them build up a certain business, and then they can trade with us, you can see that over time on a graph. But this idea of American influence throughout the world, over time, you don't see the loss immediately because it's not on a balance sheet anywhere. Do you think the issue of whether or not we should be involved in the world Hmm. is beyond debate, or is that a legitimate thing that people should talk about? It's 100% legitimate. It's legitimate to question what we're doing, where we're doing it, how we're doing it. I think that's, that is sort of the essence of democracy, right? We, the only reason that the United States is involved in various countries and various places around the world is because we are trying to essentially fulfill one of the you know, requirements in our constitution you know, to provide for our common defense, right? That's why, that's why we're out there. The people ought to have a say in this. My view is that it is hugely in our interest to spend the time, spend the money, have the people overseas, but to do so in a way that we rethink on a constant basis. And I also think it is, it is critically important that we explain what we're doing not in abstract notions of you know, the American exceptionalism or, you know, whatever it is, but why it is that if we invest in the education of some girl in a refugee camp in Syria or we invest in anti-corruption efforts in Central America, that 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 helps the United States both be more secure, it helps our prosperity, and frankly, it helps uh, the image of America in the world, which in, as you say, amorphous ways— but in ways that ultimately are very real, helps to protect the United States. I mean, another easy question. Yeah. In 60 <laughs> seconds, explain how we solve all of our issues with North Korea hmm. through sanctions. So I think the you Trump can, you administration— can take 90, You can take, can 90, take 90, 90, yeah. 90 seconds. I think the Trump administration has screwed this up to a fairly well. And by that I mean— he says it's all fixed. Yeah, that's, that's why it's screwed up, right? I will give credit to the Trump administration to some extent for a limited time in what they were doing at the beginning of this administration in ramping up sanctions on North Korea. Right? They built on a foundation that had been laid but did some significant steps to enhance the pressure on North Korea and to bring in the Chinese to the effort. Those, those sanctions, that isolation of North Korea— was starting to work. You could see it starting to work. Then you have Donald Trump just jump into the breach here in a way to sort of claim glory in this Singapore summit. And it destroyed everything that had been being built. Right? So he comes out of that summit, first of all, with a you know, declaration with Kim Jong-un that is fool's gold. Right? It's this disarmament declaration where there's no substance to it. He then tweets that we have solved the problem of a nuclear North Korea on his way back home. He's recently told us that he fell in love with Kim Jong-un at this summit. <laughs> I remember um, that. It was, yeah. very, it, was very, it was very touching. And the effect of that was to completely undermine the sanctions pressure that was being built. The Chinese in particular, but also the Russians, are now 
essentially not working with us or not working with us to the degree that they were previously to put pressure on North Korea. And Kim Jong-un has, you know, since that summit, taken a couple of steps that are completely reversible and ultimately meaningless in terms of restricting his program. He's insisted that he only will negotiate with Donald Trump. So you've got Pompeo, you've got Steve Began, you have others at the working level trying to work with North Korea. They don't What about Dennis Rodman? Care. And Dennis Rodman too, probably. Yeah, I'm not sure they've deployed Rodman yet, but I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. And so, look, the, ultimately where we are now with North Korea is that the Trump administration is working us into a position where North Korea is going to be a de facto member of the nuclear club. And How soon? Well, they they have nuclear weapons. I but think the only in the way question, that they can deploy it against us. Yeah, we don't know with any precision whether their ICBMs can strike the United States. I don't think we can exclude the possibility that, as we sit here today, that North Korea can stick a nuclear weapon on top of an ICBM and it can strike the U.S. But the so that's obviously a problem. Um, that problem is compounded by the fact that. The way this North Korea issue has been handled, we don't have the rest of the world now working with us to try to restrict and ultimately eliminate the North Korean nuclear program. Can I ask a personal question? Yeah. Personal professional. Don't worry. <laughs> a look of alarm <laughs> on your face. Um, up to the last day that you were the deputy director at the CIA, you had presumably every day access to and got briefed on the state of play of a lot of threats yeah. in the world, including, even though maybe we didn't know with precision, but you knew that day, like January 19th, 2017, the best thinking of how soon North Korea would be able to deploy weapons against us mm-hmm. that they've developed already. Yes. Without being specific. Sure. You, still have yeah, that yeah. Yeah, yeah. you knew a lot of stuff. Do you miss knowing that stuff? Or does it give you some relief that it's not <laughs> on your plate anymore? No. I mean, let's be honest, of course I miss knowing that stuff. It was, but did it, bug you, did it bug you out every day? Like, oh my gosh, look at all these threats. It, it didn't. And it didn't, I think, in large measure because I also had visibility into what we were doing about it and the people who were working on it and the, the range of things that we were doing to try to provide for American security. So yeah, there were lots of really gnarly problems and some really, you know, frightening threats out there. But, you know, we were getting after it. To the extent you can be specific without violating any duty. If you had had another year Mm -hmm. uh, at the top there at the CIA, was there a particular area that you thought, wow, I would really like to see this through and spend another year trying Mm -hmm. to, you know, protect America from any particular threat? If there's one you could pick, what would it be? Or you can pick three. Yeah. Well, look, the the situation in Syria when we were there, and to some extent, you know, even as we sit here today, was, I think, by far the most complex, difficult, and seemingly insoluble problem. And, you know, although I, I don't pretend to believe that, you know, had we had another year, we could have landed that aircraft in a way that peace and, and, uh, and happiness broke out all over the Levant, that's an issue where I think, you know, I would have liked to have been able to continue to, to work on it. Look, and the North Korea-Iran issues, um, those nuclear issues, I think, are, are ones we want to continue to work on. 
you know, the list is long. Yeah. Cyber, China, <laughs> All right, well, we there's gotta, a whole we gotta, host. Got to get you back in there. Yeah. Why do we have so many <laughs> intelligence agencies? <laughs> what, uh, what is it, like 300? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, because they grew up over time in a fashion that was uh, not the, I think, the original design. I think if we were designing an intelligence community from scratch. It would, it would look differently. You think we would have just one? Or do you think various agencies need to have some intelligence capability? You know, it's a it's a really interesting and hard question. I think expertise that you can develop in a in a specific agency, like the NSA with its SIGINT capability and its you know, cryptological capability. SIGINT, you mean signals intelligence? Signals intelligence, yeah. You know, could that develop within a broader intelligence agency? Yes, it could. You know, it's part of the broader intelligence community. But there's also something about having, you know, a dedicated focus that helps to, uh, you know, concentrate the activity and, and improve the, the performance. What do you think the morale of people is at the CIA right now? So people ask me that a lot. They um, do. They I do. Th- I thought it was. They do. No, it was a very good question. For, it is a good question. Um, <laughs> and I think the right answer to that is to say, I think the morale in the agency is the same as the morale in the United States. Well, um, that sucks. Yeah. Well, in some respects, it does, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of people in the United States who are quite quite unhappy with the way things are. The, the agency is yeah, a big place. Not everyone, place. but it's a, a right. majority. Yeah. yeah. And the agency is a big place, and it's got people from all walks of life, from all around the country, who all have different perspective. That's sort of on the political dimension. I do think one important aspect of, you know, morale at the agency is that there is a enormously powerful mission orientation to what people do there. So what they think about Donald Trump, uh, you know, what they think about, you know, Hillary Clinton or, you know, whoever the Democratic candidates may be in 2020 or the other Republican candidates for that matter in 2020 is not that important. Their morale doesn't depend on that. Their morale depends on whether they're able to pursue their mission. I do think that the way that this administration uses or does not use intelligence has some impact on how people in the agency feel about their day-to-day work. But it's not, it isn't political. It's that, you know, they're busting their ass, they're taking risks, they're living in, you know, austere and difficult places overseas, away from family, away from friends, whatever it may be. And the product that they're generating is not being used in the way it's supposed to be used, I think that has an impact. You know, it's very similar to the way I would answer if I was asked about the Justice Department. I think overall morale is high because the work that people do is based on the mission that they have and whether they're pursuing gang violence or homicide cases or public corruption or anything else. They don't love it, I'm sure, when the president of the United States casts aspersions on their attorney general and seems to think that there's no such thing as truth, that his lawyer's saying truth isn't truth, and there's such a thing as alternative facts, and all of that is right. not great. But probably the morale they feel as citizens is in worse shape than the morale they feel in those jobs, unless yeah. you're in a certain line of work. So I, I imagine there's some people who are working on particular issues, maybe the folks who are focusing on North Korea, may have their morale impacted more seriously than your average rank-and-file agent yeah. or analyst or, or other yeah. employee. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the the... The closer you are to the crazy, the more your morale is going to suffer. Um, what do you make of John Brennan's Twitter feed? <laughs> Not crazy, first of all. Look, I think John, having spent 
a lifetime in the intelligence community, a lifetime looking at threats to the United States, uh, looking at how autocrats operate and the damage that they can do to their country, and a lifetime understanding that his responsibility is to warn about threats, is acting in the way that a lifelong intelligence officer who has a platform now as a private citizen should act. I don't have a problem with John saying publicly, whether by Twitter or or otherwise, that he sees what this administration is doing and what Donald Trump in particular is doing as a threat to the United States. I think we're all the beneficiaries of people like John, of people like Mike Hayden, John McLaughlin, and others, people who have spent their life defending this country, Stan McChrystal, you know, Bill McRaven, you know, real true American heroes. So-called generals. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, You know, people who have done extraordinary things and have spent their life thinking about these issues saying there's something seriously different and worrying going on. I think they're doing us a service. Say something hopeful about the future. I think that this country and the people who work for our government are fundamentally good. They will ensure as we go forward that what this country stands for prevails and that the harm done in these four years gets repaired. David Cohen, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Hey, listeners, if you haven't had a chance yet, check out the new Cafe Store, where you can find original Stay Tuned merchandise, like T-shirts and hoodies and mugs. Maybe you've spotted our gear at live shows or on social media, but now you can find it online at shop.cafe.com. So head to shop.cafe.com to check out the Stay Tuned swag and rep your favorite podcast. That's shop.cafe.com. So this is the part of the show where I talk about something that struck me in the news. And today I want to talk about a basketball player. And whether or not you're a fan of basketball, you should know the story of Enes Kanter. Enes Kanter is of Turkish background, uh, but is a legal permanent resident in the United States on the path to getting his citizenship. He plays for the New York Knicks. Before that, he played for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Before that, he was drafted into the Utah Jazz. And the reason I mention him is because he is in some jeopardy of being arrested if he ever goes to play abroad. And as he announced in his own op-ed in the Washington Post this week, when the Knicks go to play a basketball game in London, the same day that this podcast drops, he won't be with them because he fears for his life. Now, why does a basketball player in the NBA fear for his life? Where it turns out that Enes Kanter does not have a good relationship with the president of Turkey, President Erdogan, who you've heard about before because I've talked about the situation in Turkey on the podcast a number of times. To remind you of the background, President Erdogan is very angry with and wants to extradite back to Turkey a gentleman by the name of Fatula Gulen, who he claims helped launch the failed coup in Turkey a couple of years ago. There has been talk about whether or not Michael Flynn was trying to help the rendition of this American resident, Fatula Gulen, back to Turkey. And whatever squabbles that someone like Gulen and Erdogan have, Uh, And whatever support even a basketball player like Ennis Kanter may have for Gulen, I think if you're an American, you should shudder at the thought that 
as Bill Browder has suggested many times, that Interpol can be used by a authoritarian leader of a country, whether it's Putin in Russia or Erdogan in Turkey, to snatch Americans who are doing nothing more than exercising their First Amendment rights or having disagreements in a respectful way, can be snatched from an airport if they travel somewhere and brought back to Turkey to face imprisonment and perhaps even worse. As Ennis Cantor says in his op-ed in the Washington Post, quote, I wouldn't travel this week to Britain where I easily could be kidnapped or killed by Turkish agents. Erdogan's arms are long. He hunts down anyone who opposes him. And he reminds us, Cantor does, that in 2017, Erdogan's security team, or thugs, as the Post's editorial board described them, even beat up peaceful protesters outside the Turkish ambassador's residence in Washington. Remember that? So I'm mentioning this chiefly because I think we should figure out a way in the world for people to be able to practice their profession, whether it's playing basketball or being a journalist, exercise their right to speak, exercise their right to associate, and it would be nice to see someone on the American side, I haven't seen it yet, but an American official, and to cry this kind of gamesmanship and threatening conduct on the part of so-called officials in Turkey. Ennis Cantor should be able to, without fear, go play basketball in London with the Knicks, rather than have to be concerned about trumped-up charges, literally trumped-up charges of terrorism against him. I can't put it any better than Ennis did himself in a tweet where he said, the only thing I terrorize is the rim. Good for you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Cohen. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.